0: we continue our sermon series in Exodus. Uh, if you'd like to uh, follow along on the scripture and you don't have a Bible on our, uh, the church app, you can find the sermon guide, and that will have the scripture printed along with a sermon outline and some interactive questions. Uh, or you can follow along on the screen uh, behind me, or if you're live streaming, it will be there for you to read. Exodus 4, starting in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. One father tells the story of his children uh, either slipping up or doing it for fun, calling him by his first name. And he says, every time his children call him by his first name, he he knows they don't mean disrespect. He knows they're doing it in jest. Uh, But he says, I always correct them. And they'll ask, they'll say, Dad, what's the big deal if we call you by your first name? And he says, this is what he tells them. It's just that you don't want me to start treating you as though you only know me as Todd. You want me, you need me to be your dad, to be your father. Friends call me Todd, but I wouldn't die for most of my friends. I would die for you. So you need to call me dad call me Father. It's a story that elevates the importance of how we relate to each other, the importance of how people relate to us. It's important how your kids relate to you. It's important how your boss at work or your professor at college or your coach relates to you. It's important how your parents relate to you. It's important how your friends relate to you. But as important as that is, there's something even more important. And that is how God relates to you. Because how God relates to you impacts how you relate to each other. So the question is, how does God relate to you? This passage in Exodus 4 answers that question. And what it says is that God relates to us as a father, as a father who fights for his children, as a father who sacrifices for his children. Now, at first glance, this passage has some hard verses in it that don't, on the surface, lend towards that. At first glance, God can seem in this passage to be somewhat fickle, somewhat capricious, changing his mind. He hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then he seeks to kill Moses, the man he had just risen up to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And yet on the surface, while that may seem to be the case, the core heart motivation of God is very consistent in this passage. And it dictates the ways that he behaves in this passage. You say, well, what is his core heart motivation that would cause him to harden Pharaoh's heart and cause him to seek to kill Moses, the man he had raised up to rescue his people out of Egypt? What's his core heart motivation? Look at verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son. The motivation of God is love. The motivation of God that would cause him to harden Pharaoh's heart in this passage to seek to kill Moses is love that a father has for a son. Now, if that's his motivation, what's the father's goal? What's his goal? Look at verse 23. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Father's motivated by love, but his goal is for his children to worship him, to serve him for the relationship to be restored. The relationship with his children to be restored. That's the father's goal. The Israelites don't belong to Pharaoh. They are God's beloved son. While they're forced to call Pharaoh master, they're not free to call God father. That's why he's gonna rescue them out of Egypt. And from all worldly points of view, Israel didn't have a whole lot to be proud of. Oh, but they were God's choice. They were God's beloved son. In the prophet Hosea chapter 11, verse one, this is picked up. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So God's motivation is love. His goal is restored relationship with his children. But what happens between that motivation and the goal of restoration? What happens in between is the battle. And it's an intense battle that God fights for his children. We see it in verse 21. Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now remember, Pharaoh, in this Exodus story, is the epitome of evil, the representation of evil. What does it mean that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Well, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart appears some 20 times in the book of Exodus, and it's described in different ways. So in some cases, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. In other cases, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but it doesn't specify who does the hardening. And then in other cases, this being an example, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, What does that mean? How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? He does so simply by revealing himself, by revealing his power, by revealing his presence, by revealing his glory, his love for his children, his hatred of sin, in the signs and the wonders that we'll see in the 10 plagues which are coming. What we learn in the scriptures is that when God reveals himself to a hardened, unbelieving heart that apart from grace, that heart only becomes harder. Apart from the Holy Spirit softening a heart, a hardened and unbelieving heart only becomes harder when God reveals himself. And that's exactly what happens to Pharaoh. Right? The sun melts wax, but the sun also hardens clay. It does both. Melts wax, hardens clay. We'll see by the end of chapter four that God's children, the Israelites, actually respond. They believe, they worship, they soften, right? You see God's revelation softening them, melting their hearts like wax, but you see God's revelation, which we'll see in chapter five when he appears through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, we'll see Pharaoh's heart starting to harden. Right? The sun hardens clay. Brian Chapel, pastor, tells the story of one of the most powerful images of, uh, from his wife's childhood. And she tells the story growing up that uh, she and a neighborhood friend were out in the back of the house playing in the woods. And one of the, uh, and her neighborhood friend stepped into a, um, a nest of ground bees. And so these bees flared up and started swarming around her and her friend, started stinging them repeatedly, and they started screaming for help. And then uh, she says she'll never forget it. Out of nowhere, like Superman, like her father comes crashing into the woods, jumping over logs, jumping over bushes and ivy, snatches both girls up, one under each arm, and sprints out of the woods away from the bees. During the rescue, the father's grip actually bruised the girl's arms, and the thorns were ripping at their skin, and the brush was scratching, and the branches were scratching their legs. The rescue hurt, but it was better than the bees. That's an image that is not unlike the work of our heavenly father. He comes crashing into your world. He enters your reality. He steps toe-to-toe with your sin and evil. Just like he crashes into the Israelites' world and steps toe-to-toe with the evil of Pharaoh. He crashes into your world, steps toe-to-toe with evil and rescues you, but oftentimes when God steps toe-to-toe with your sin and evil. Oftentimes, evil gets stirred up. I imagine with the bee story that when that father crashed into those woods and when that father went into that swarm of bees and started grabbing the girls and running, I imagine those bees got even more threatened and started stinging all the more rapidly. And that's exactly what we see happening here in the Exodus story at this point. When God reveals himself at the beginning of chapter 5 to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh gets angry. Pharaoh ramps up the oppression. In the near term of this rescue of his children, things get worse for God's children in Egypt. Maybe God is crashing into your life right now. Maybe he is revealing himself to you right now. Or maybe you remember when he did crash into your life and reveal himself. And maybe in the near term, things got harder. Maybe in the near term, things got really, really difficult. Bruises. And maybe you're not coming out unscathed yet, but let me assure you of this. When God reveals himself, And when God crashes into your world, though the rescue may hurt and leave some bruises, you can be assured that you are in the safety of your father's arms and that he is rescuing you because God fights for his children. God fights for his children. That's the first way that God relates to you as a father who fights for his children. But Once he crashes into your world, once he reveals himself, how does he then rescue you? Because that's the second way that God relates to you. He fights for you, but not only does he fight for you, he sacrifices for you. He sacrifices for his children. Describes what his rescue looks like. And to answer the question, what does his rescue look like? We're going to hit these very hard verses, starting in verse 24. It says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Then verse 25, Zipporah, Moses' wife, cuts off her son's foreskin. She circumcises him. And she takes the foreskin, the bloody foreskin, and wipes it or touches Moses' feet with it. Then we read verse 26. So God let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, again, if you read these verses just and rip them out of the immediate context, you can come away with a view of God as capricious and fickle. Raises Moses up to rescue and now he's seeking to kill him. What's going on here? Well, let me remind you that the core of what's happening here is driven out of God's motivation, right? Israel is my firstborn son. This is a father fighting for his children. And what we see here is there's a problem. And that is that one of his children, Moses, is turning away from the father. He's turning away from God. You say, how's he doing that? Well, he he didn't circumcise his son. You say, well, what's the big deal? Really? You know, God's shown all this patience so far, right? Moses, we saw it last week, gave about five excuses for not answering God's call. And God was patiently, patiently pursuing him. Now he forgets to circumcise his son or chooses not to. And God, God's wrath is placed on him. God seeks to kill him, right? What's the big deal? Well, you got to understand circumcision. So circumcision began, was initiated by God, in the covenant he made with with, uh, Abraham. God said to Abraham back in Genesis, I will be your people. I will be your God. You will be my people. In other words, I will be your father. You will be my children. And the sign of this covenant relationship or this family relationship was circumcision. God has been in the business of growing a family. You say, what is the mission of God in this world? He is growing a family. It started with Abraham. It's worked through the Old Testament all the way through the New. And the sign of belonging right, to the family was circumcision. We just saw the sign now as baptism, no longer a bloody sign because of the work of Christ. But it's a sign of circumcision. Circumcision signified two things. It signified a problem and it signified a solution. Now, how did it signify the problem? Well, circumcision involved a cutting off of the foreskin. Something was removed in circumcision, signifying the need for sin to be removed. The problem at this point is that Moses is in sin. He's not conforming to God's holiness. Remember last week, we talked about the holiness of God embraces all that conforms to it. And it destroys all that doesn't conform or that offends. And Moses right now is not conforming to God's holiness. He's chosen not to circumcise. He's chosen to go his own way. And so he's placed under God's wrath, just wrath. That's the problem. Now, now what's interesting here, and this is going to get to the second half. So circumcision signifies the problem, but it also signifies the solution. Notice what happens. So Moses is placed under divine wrath. What turns God, God's wrath aside? When it says in verse 26, he let him alone. Well, remember, circumcision was a bloody sign. When the foreskin was cut off, it was bloody. Hebrews 9.22 says, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of, of blood. In verse 26, when it said God let him alone or turned aside, it was the blood of circumcision that turned God's wrath aside. It was the blood of circumcision that turned God's wrath aside. And this for Moses was his mini M-I-N-I Passover. Okay, because not too long from now, Moses is gonna be before his people, before God's people. On the eve of rescuing his people out of Egypt, God institutes the Passover. And the Passover was to his children, make sure your males are circumcised and I want you to sacrifice a lamb. I want you to take the blood, wipe it on the doorposts. And when God's presence and holiness moved through Egypt, the blood on the doorpost would turn aside his judgment and his wrath. Now, imagine Moses on the eve of delivering God's people out of Egypt and God institutes this Passover. I guarantee, because of this experience that we're looking at right now, I guarantee he looked at the Israelites and he said, with great conviction, get inside your house. Because he understood that there was no survival apart from being covered by the blood because he experienced it here. God's wrath was turned aside by the blood of circumcision. Now, of course, the blood of circumcision, the blood of a sacrificed animal never ultimately took away sin. Hebrews makes that clear. Right? This blood was pointing towards the blood of another. Israel would never live up to the demands of sonship. They would be wayward children, just like you and I, never living up to the demands of what it means to be a child of God. And so therefore, they, we are in our sin placed under God's wrath. But this exodus is pointing to a greater exodus. Many centuries later, when God would send his own beloved son, Jesus Christ, when he was born into the world, Herod, who was the king, sought to kill Jesus. So God told Joseph, take Jesus down to Egypt and stay in Egypt until Herod dies. And then we read this in Matthew 2.15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. What's Matthew getting at there? He's saying that Jesus Christ is the greater Exodus. The, the, The story we're reading right now in the book of Exodus is pointing to that greater exodus. And then one chapter later in Matthew three seventeen, God says this, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Jesus Christ is God's perfect son. He's the son that God always wanted. He's the son that God loved deeply, which is what makes the crucifixion and what happened at the cross, all the more shocking. Only the blood of Jesus could turn the father's wrath away from his children. Just wrath away from his children. Only the blood of Jesus could do that. We see this in the, in the story of, of Moses when he didn't circumcise his son. Moses is under God's wrath. He couldn't get himself out of that. Right? Somebody else had to get Moses out of that condition. It was his wife, Zipporah. She's the one that stepped in, circumcised their son. And it wasn't even Moses' blood. So you see there even a picture of the gospel. You and I can't get ourselves out from underneath God's wrath. Can't be good enough. You can't perform. You can't, you can't. Someone else has to enter in and turn aside the father's wrath. And that's what Jesus has done. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Pastor Jeff Ebert tells a story when he was five years old. He says this was before uh, mandated factory installed seatbelts on cars. This was before automobile airbags. So he and his family were driving home. He's five years old, driving home from some event on a two-lane country road. And he's sitting in his mom's lap. Obviously, this is years ago sitting on his mom's lap, and the car coming the other way veered across the center line, the drunk driver, and collided head on with them. He says he he can't remember, he doesn't remember the collision, but he remembers the fear and the confusion of looking down and seeing himself covered in blood from head to toe. And then he learned that it wasn't his blood. His mother instinctually, when that car crossed over and was headed for a head-on collision, his mother pulled him in tight and turned her body so that she impacted the dashboard and her head shattered the windshield. He was covered by her blood, but he was safe. In a similar way, but a far more significant, significant way, Jesus Christ took the impact for your sin and you are permanently covered by his blood for life. Let me take you back to the story of the bees for a second. You know, there are bees that they sting once and die. When they sting you, they die. It's not all bees, but it is true of honeybees that when a honeybee stings you, uh, it has a barbed stinger. And so when it goes into you, when the bee tries to fly away, all of its insides that are attached to the barb gets ripped out. That's why the bee dies after it stings you. God the Father sent his son, beloved son Jesus Christ, into the swarm to be stung to death by your sin so that your sin would die and no longer have the power to sting you, to ruin you, to destroy you ever again. Now, how do you respond to this? How do you respond to this? How did Israel, God's firstborn son, respond? Look at verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. That's a response of worship, it's a response of gratitude. And gratitude's an appropriate response to what God the Father has done to restore his relationship with you. Gratitude is appropriate. But Michael Reeves, he's author of Delighting in the Trinity, he makes the point that gratitude is certainly an appropriate response, but it's insufficient. He says, if, because it's born out of, ultimately, if it's just gratitude, it's born out of a viewing God as the supreme ruler of the universe. He says, if you only view God as the supreme ruler of the universe, which is true, He is sovereign, but if you only view him as the supreme ruler, and the problem is that you've broken the rules, then the only salvation he can offer is to forgive you and count you as having not broken the rules. He says that kind of relationship will make your relationship to God maybe a little better, not much better than your relationship to a traffic cop. Right? that if you get pulled over by a traffic cop for speeding, for breaking the law, and that cop decides to let you go, decides to let you go, even though you, you broke the law, what would your response be to that cop? It'd be gratitude. It'd be deep gratitude. But you wouldn't love that cop. You'd just be grateful. He says, so it is with the divine, divine policeman view that if you only view God as ruler, then salvation is nothing more than you you being a lawbreaker, uh, him forgiving you and treating you as a law-abiding citizen. Gratitude is appropriate, but in that view, you can't get to love, and then ironically, you can't obey the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God. God is the supreme ruler, but God primarily reveals himself to you as father. That is how God reveals himself to his children, as father. There's this incredible behind-the-scenes look of what happened in creation in Genesis 1 when God the Father and Christ the Son created the world. We learn in Colossians 1 that God created the world through Christ. He was there at creation. But then there's this amazing behind-the-scenes look of what was actually going on when they were creating. It's out of Proverbs chapter 8 verses 30 to 31. It says then I which in Proverbs is personified wisdom but it's fulfilled in Christ. So then I speaking of Christ was beside him the Father like a master workman and I was daily his delight the Father's delight rejoicing before him always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. What a picture. At the beginning of creation, you've got God the Father with Jesus the Son as the master workman. God the Father's delighting in his Son. The Son's delighting in the Father. And then it says that when the children of mankind were created, that God the Father delighting in the Son delighted in the children that were being created. That's what happened at creation. And of course, sin just destroyed that. But that's what God is fighting for, is to get his love relationship back with his children and he's done it through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that God delights in you? I'm not asking if you believe that God puts up with you. Do you believe that he delights in you? If you're in Christ, if you have trusted Christ, here's the astonishing truth of the gospel. God the Father's delight for his son Jesus, if you're in Christ, is the same delight that he has for you. That's why God the Father sent his son into this world was to restore the family so that you by believing in Christ become a part of God's family and share in the delight of the Father. Let's pray. Father, The reason it's so hard for us to believe that you delight in us is because we know our sin. We know our rebellion. We know our willful choice to choose sin over you. And we look back on our week and have seen that happen over and over. Oh, Father, would you remind us this morning that you don't delight in us by ourselves, apart from Christ, you delight in us because we are in Christ if we have put our trust in Christ. And that the delight that you have for your son is the delight that you have for us. What's true of your son is true of us if we're in Christ. That's astonishing news. And Father, would you cause that truth to drill down deep? And would you by your spirit, cause us as we live in that delight to see the the power of sin and the grip of sin to be loosened on us. Father, I pray for those that maybe have never seen God as Father. Maybe those who have grown up only seen you as supreme ruler have never understood the intimacy that can be had between you, Father, and your children. Oh, would you draw them to that place of faith in Christ that they could share in the delight and live under your delight. Father, as we close in worship, would we sing with delight over who you are and what you've done for us in and through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.